Welcome to State of the Art Southern Illinois, a podcast by the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. Our guest today is Brandon McGee, the director of Beauty and the Beast, produced by Creative Arts Academy, coming up at the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. Brandon and I discuss his background, his approach to tackling a musical like Beauty and the Beast, and how he directs with 130 kids in the cast. Brandon, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. So, you're from Southern Illinois originally. Where did you grow up? Um, I'm originally from West Frankfort, Illinois, which is, you know, a very, very small, <laughs> small town. Um, population of about 8,500-ish, maybe, maybe a little less now. I'm not really sure, but yeah, West Frankfort, so. And being from West Frankfort, how did you find theater? How did you land in theater. It's a very, very funny story. Um, so high school throughout my younger years, I didn't really do any theater. Like it was, I didn't even know what it was to be honest. Um, and then in high school for the first couple years, again, no idea. Um, but then my junior year, I was asked to help backstage with one of our, you know, shows at the high school. And, so I was like, sure, why not? I had no idea what it entailed, but it was just kind of moving stuff around. And I'm trying to remember what show we even did, but there was a prop piece where, um, where knives were, a pajama game, I think it might have been. Knives were thrown, so I had to stand back there and like push the prop knives through the little thing. And like, it was, it was pretty cool. And so after that, um, my senior year came and I had a group of friends that were kind of involved in choir and band and that kind of thing. And they were like, hey, like you can sing, right? Like, We've heard you a couple times. Why don't you try auditioning for the show, which was Once Upon a Mattress? And I'm like, eh, I don't know. And so, like, they almost literally drugged me down the hall to the audition. And I sang a song and did my thing, and it was nerve-wracking and whatnot. And so then from that point forward, I got, you know, I got cast in that show as Sir Harry, one of the principal roles. And I was like, huh, well, this is kind of fun and entertaining and I literally haven't looked back since since that show. Like it's, you know, my first show was at Renlight College uh, out of high school and it was Beauty and the Beast. And then, you know, I worked with Pyramid Players up in, you know, Benton, Renlake and all that for a little bit. And then just kind of expanded from there. So West Frankfurt, you know, it was very limited. Um, my experience was very limited as far as the theater world goes. But once I once I saw it and once I did it the first time, it was like, I mean, literally, here I am now. So West Frankfurt was very, <clears throat> like, typical small town, small program theater, low production. Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, um, scrappy little high school production. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, you know, we, back back then, theater there was. I mean, it was. We had some really good performers and really talented people. Um, not that they don't have that there now. I mean, they do. I've seen a few of their shows, but um, it was it was a really strong. It was a stronger time for the theater there in West Frankfurt then, um, and it's you know, but it was in a small town, and we had you know limited resources and whatnot, and so yeah. I mean, it was it was smaller than you know things you would see at the Civic Center or whatever. And well, and productions like that are so much fun because. Mm-hmm. 
you use resources in a completely different way. Oh, for sure. And you use scenery in a completely different way. And, mm-hmm. and, and there's a, like, it, there, there's a scrappiness to it. Like, right. like you're fighting for your art and there, there's something wonderful about that in, in the startup and, and getting your start in theater mm-hmm. rather than starting right off the bat in incredibly high level production. Right. You know, it's starting in a scrappy, scrappy space where, where it's just people pursuing what they're passionate about and their art there's a certain fire that can be lit there. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened. They had, you know, most of the auditorium was taken up by wrestling, you know, the wrestling team for most of the year, you know, with wrestling mats in there and, and everything like that. And they had one small little room off, you know, off the auditorium where they kept with what limited platforms and wall flats and scenic stuff that they had um, in that little room. And that's where they also did the makeup and everything for every show. And I mean, it was all that one tiny little room. Um, they had the band and chorus room down the hall, but all the theater stuff was kept in this little tiny storage room. And so they would bring that out and paint it in different colors or whatever for each show. And it was just, you know, it was pretty cool how it all came together out of that tiny little room. So, yeah, that's neat. But let's start with the first show, Pajama Game, where you worked backstage. Mm-hmm. What exactly about that process made you fall in love with it? Live theater is a totally it's a totally different experience from from movies and whatever. The, the live audience, you know, that's there. The fact that each performance can be completely different um, as far as audience reaction, as far as what happens on stage. How an actor delivers a, one single line can change the way you know a whole scene happens. Um, all of that is is just really interesting in that some little moments like that can change completely. Whereas in a movie, you film it, you know may film the same scene ten times and get the perfect whatever. Well, you don't you don't necessarily get that in live theater. So I guess it was all of that staying on your toes and. And just the the live nature of it with the live audience that kind of drew me into it the most. And you mentioned the the knife throwing and, and mm-hmm. like even working backstage for that, you had to be so precise with your cueing mm-hmm. to be a part of the show and to make that moment real. Right. That there's an exhilaration for the backstage crew at that point. It is just getting those those five knives that were thrown, you know, right every time. It, I mean, it was just, it was pretty cool. I mean, the audience's reaction to, you know, you, you can kind of figure out how it was done, but these, I mean, they were spring-loaded in the back, so they fired out pretty quick, and there's a stop on them and all that kind of stuff. But it was, I mean, seeing it, because I, I saw a video of it after the fact, and just seeing it, the way it looked to the audience was pretty cool, because, I mean, it looked kind of legit from from where it was, but you knew standing behind it, you know, this is what was really going on. So that kind of aspect, that backstage aspect was really cool. So... And so whenever you played Harry in uh, Once Upon a Mattress mm-hmm. and you got in front of the crowd for the first time, mm-hmm. what was that feeling? The first time was very, very nervous. I was very nervous, like really nervous. Um, I, it was my first time ever doing that part of it. And so I, you know, my friends kept telling me, you know, you can sing, you can do this. And, you know, I, I had never done anything like that in front of people. So, um so yeah, it was, I mean, the nerves were there, um, but once I got those shaken off, it was, it was a lot of fun. I had a great time. I got to hang with my friends and, and do this in front of an audience, and yeah, it was just, it was fun. You mentioned your friends being part of it. Um, there's something about doing theater 
that is a communal experience mm-hmm. uh, because no one person on stage can make or can make the, make or break the show by themselves necessarily. Right. Um, it has to be everyone working together towards a goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that type of a communal project whenever you're in high school and you're looking for a place to belong is so important. Yeah. I mean, um, we had, it wasn't just the, the band and choir and all the, you know, the theater kids that were in some of these shows. Like we had people from, you know, a couple people from different sports teams, a couple people from, you know, other clubs on campus. And so um, just seeing all those groups come together in this one form of, you know, entertainment or this one thing was, it was pretty cool as far as community goes. So now you're here as the director of Beauty and the Beast that's going to be here at the Marion Cultural and Civic Center, um, September 9th, 10th, 10th and 11th. Uh, and when did you uh, decide that you could be on the other side um, in helping create the show? Um, well, creative um, started 2013, 2014. Um, I was originally the stage manager for creative, which was backstage and all that kind of stuff. And then kind of was asked if I wanted to direct. And so I, I said, yeah, sure. Um, I had done so many things backstage and stage managed and seen how a show had come together. And um, at that point, I had experience, you know, uh, working in the technical side I, at John A. Logan. Um, worked in the theater over there for several years before creative came to me. And so I'd seen all aspects of the show come together from various viewpoints, um, but I had never been the one to, you know, kind of put all of that together into, you know, a collaborative show. And so being, I mean, doing, getting to do that, being the one to to do that, to, to put all those elements together seemed like it would be, you know, a great fit, I guess, since I had already seen it from so many different angles, the acting angle, the stage management, the, you know, production angle. Um, it just seemed like me being able to see a show from all those angles is what a director is essentially and putting together the creative process and, and the whole thing, you know, as one complete product, it just made it a lot easier. And so doing that, it's, it's, I'm here now directing. This is my, I think fifth or sixth creative show that I've directed and um, it's it's just a lot of fun. I, I love it. I get I love the creative process and working with the team of costume designers and lighting designers and set designers and all that and putting together a really awesome show. So, and the one I'm glad you mentioned all of the different aspects that come into it and managing all of that together. The role of director for a lot of community theaters um, from a from a traditional um, organizational role is really that of both the role of producer and director Um, because you're really managing the overall vision throughout all of the different elements and bringing all of it together the way a producer would while being the director for the show as well. And so that's one of the, the beautiful things about community theater is that, you know, so many things get consolidated primarily for efficiency and you know, the budgets aren't there right. to hire producers and to hire all this stuff. And so uh, 
bringing all of that together into one role as a director is really cool. Um, and it's really wearing a lot of hats all at once. But um, so how many shows, this is the third or fourth show you've directed for creative? I think this is fifth or sixth. Okay. I'm pretty sure. Cause I, I mean, yeah, it's gotta be at least five. Okay. Um, so it's some of these kids that are in, in these shows um, I've seen grow up. I mean, literally from the beginning of creative, um, we just did SpongeBob, the musical, um, our last show, and Nate Sanders, who played the title role of SpongeBob, was in our very first production of Shrek as like an eight-year-old, and it was crazy to see him, you know, come from that point and play the title character of SpongeBob in the show, and 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 know that I've been a part of every single one of those shows that he had been a part of with Creative. It was just super cool, um, and that's the case with a lot of these kids that are in these shows, and we and we see them, you know start very young and then here they are now playing lead roles and it's just it's a cool process and Nate particularly was one that it was really cool to see just where he had come from and where he how much he has grown he's an SIU student now and he's doing theater and it's just it was it was really something awesome to see him play that role that's got to be really rewarding to oh for sure to to see that interaction with someone's life and to see it develop Mm -hmm. into something that they're so passionate about that they're that's now their major at in college yeah. and they're pursuing that for their life because of what they've been part of with you as attached to it. Right. It's, it's crazy. Um, he, I mean, he performed, you know, one of the lead roles in SIU's recent production over there. And it's, I mean, it was, it was awesome to just to see him get to that point and be there. And it all stemmed from, you know, Shrek the musical being night number five in the ensemble. I mean, it's yeah, it was just really cool. So whenever you approach a show, um, let's look specifically at Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you start? Like after after creative, because the board of directors for creative helps to choose the shows, right? Um, but once a cho- show has been chosen, how do you approach it? What's your very first thing? So the very first thing I do, um, I've been fortunate because with this show specifically, because I've done Beating the Beast in some aspect or another several times. So I know the show very, very well. But at the same time, I wanted to... I wanted to take a little bit different of approach to some things, try some things out um, and see, you know, make them a little different from other productions that, you know, you may have seen. Um, Not to mention the fact that there's 130 kids in this show. And so finding ways to put those 130 kids into different parts of the show, that's that's one of the challenges in and of itself. Um, So let's let's hold on right there. Yeah, yeah. There's 130 children in this show. There is, yes. Um, Because Creative is a children's community theater group, and so the oldest that anyone could possibly be is 18. Right. Um, And it's high school all the way down through five? First grade, yeah. Yeah. So five or six. um, So at six years old, all the way through 18 years old. And how does that process even start? How, how, if a child was interested in being in creative Mm -hmm. in one of the shows... What's the starting point? We have auditions. Um, even if you're a six-year-old, um, you're expected to come and audition for us, uh, whether that means you know coming in and telling us a story or singing happy birthday or 
we just want to see what you're capable of. Um, and so we, I mean, we have six year olds that come in and sing happy birthday and, and it's, you know, that's how they get their start. They get to experience that audition process at that early of an age. And they just kind of work their way up through the, you know, through the ranks, I guess you could say. And eventually, you know, you get the Nate Sanderses of the world and they become SpongeBob and the title role. And it's, it's, like I said, it's a cool process to watch, but yeah, even as five and six year olds, you know, coming in auditioning and getting that experience is, is really good for them to do. So. So that at six years old, you know, they're coming in just doing whatever they can to, to audition. It's pretty open-ended. Right. Um, if, if a high school or junior high student wants to go for a title role, mm -hmm. what does their audition look like? So the audition process should be the same for everyone. Um, what we do is we put out an expectation of, you know, a, a song, a, you know, 32 bars of a song. Um, some years we require monologues. It just kind of depends on the show. Um, but everyone is expected to do those things, whether they do them or not. That's fine. I mean, it's not, it's not a big deal. Um, but the junior high and high school kids usually come in with both. And it's, I mean, it's, there's no, there's really no, I'm trying to think of the right word. There's really no age that you can be a lead role, if you get what I'm saying. Um, so like seniors aren't necessarily the ones that get all of the lead roles. It could be a junior. It could be, you know, somebody in sixth grade. It, we really just base it off of your audition and your callback and whoever's right for the role is right for the role. That's, that's how it goes. So um, how do they get from audition to callback? What's that process? So they do their audition and um, they sing their song, do their monologue, and then we create a list of all the kids that we think might be good for each respective role. And then those kids come to another process called a callback process where we have them sing and read things from whatever show we're doing and kind of have them match up with each other and kind of read with each other for different characters and... Um, and go from there. We decide, you know, who was the best fit and who worked well together, and that's how we piece together the show. And you keep seeing we. How many people are involved in this process? So there's a, a music director, a stage manager. Um, oftentimes the choreographer comes in and listens in, um, myself, the director. Um, and then a lot of times uh, we have a rehearsal or audition accompanist that comes in too and kind of gives a little bit input here and there. But ultimately the casting comes down to the director, music director, stage manager, choreographer, those four. So there's, there's potential for four to six people in the room whenever a child's auditioning. Mm -hmm. And then you guys all work together, figure out who's going to be the best potentials for certain roles. They get called back. And then that same crew evaluates the callbacks as well. Right. Yep. To piece the show together and cast the show. It may take, you know, it may take an hour. It may take five days to cast a show and with 130 kids, especially like it, it took a little while to put the kids, you know, into their little groups and whatnot to get them where they needed to be. But we got there and we have a pretty awesome show coming up. So and even I mean, whenever Beauty and the Beast is cast, you're figuring out who's going to be best to be a spoon. Uh, and yes. a knife and yeah. and a uh, uh, a dish. Uh, yep. Um, so there's a there's a lot. It's not whenever you're casting, you're not just saying, "Oh, this is going to be Belle. This is going to be the Beast. This is going to be Gaston." You're you're dialing it down all the way through 130 plus kids. Of this is where they're going to fit. Mm -hmm. 
these kids are going to be wolves. These kids are going to be townspeople. These kids are going to be dishes. Yep. Every one of them gets put in a place and, and that's, yeah, that's where they go. So <laughs> it's a challenge. It can be a challenging process with so many kids. Um, but it's, I mean, it seems to work and we fit, fit them where they need to go and they enjoy the show. So I'm not sure if this is the biggest cast we've ever had in the Civic Center, but it's up there for sure. It's close. I yeah. mean, we, we had a show several years ago that comes close, but I can't remember the exact number, but this is, this is definitely up there. It's a lot of kids. <laughs> it's a lot of kids. Um, <laughs> so as a director, how do you, how do you piece together a show with 130 children involved? Well, you have to figure out, I mean, there's a couple songs in the show where literally 130 kids are on stage and we, I wanted to make that, you know, make that happen where we had, we showed, you know, the whole cast on stage in order to do that, you have to have places to put them. And so the two, um, the two songs in this show where they're, where they're on stage, everyone, there is multiple levels involved, multiple, you know, platforming and stairs and that kind of thing. So we can, we can kind of put kids up higher so where you can see, you know, a lot of them. Um, so just figuring out that kind of thing, um, we had to divide them up into different groups. So we featured a specific number of kids in different songs, um, and just figure out times to bring them in to where they can have their moment on stage amongst, you know, the masses. And so we've, we've done that. Um, and I think that we've done it pretty well. I think that we've really kind of divided things pretty evenly um, we have a group of featured dancers in the show that, you know, we've put in select, they're the wolves and they're the, you know, the napkins are the most dancey of the castle objects in the show. And so the, you know, those featured dancers are the napkins and, and so it's just, it's just finding those moments to, to feature everyone and making sure that everyone has, even if it's just a short amount of time, their moment with their group of, you know, objects or characters or whatever, um, where they can be seen from the audience and not, you know, just be hidden in a group of 130 kids. And so just strategically planning out each scene and who's going to be in those scenes. And I mean, that's, that's all part of the production process. So. And so every child involved is in at least two scenes, mm -hmm. um, possibly three or four. Right. Um, so they've got some involvement. With only being in that many scenes or songs, what does their rehearsal commitment look like if they're just starting out and they're just going to be in the chorus? What does their rehearsal commitment look like? So we have always taken pride and have been very careful, we being creative, in um, being conscious of time. Our time, the kids' time, the parents' time, everyone's time. Um, we only call you if you're needed. Um, we only call you for um, the scenes you're called for. We don't call everyone to every rehearsal. With 130 kids, you just can't do that. I mean, there's, I mean, it's the room gets so loud that it's hard to even concentrate when you know sometimes when there's 130 kids in one room. Um, so we divide up our rehearsal time and we split it up by scene and call whoever's needed for those scenes. And then towards the end of the process, when we're putting the whole show together. Um, which is about now, these last couple weeks, um, we do have to call everyone so that way they can practice coming on when they're supposed to and doing, you know, know the order of the show and, and whatnot. But up until this point, we, I mean, we really only call specific groups that are needed. So it makes it, it makes it really easy. So some of those, some of those kids would only be there for one rehearsal every week or so. Right. Um, as opposed to the leads that are there. A lot. Every day of rehearsal for the entire run of rehearsal. 
Right. And that's something new um, to some parents, too, um, to not have their child called for, you know, maybe a whole week is is unusual. And so they're like, whoa, whoa, did we miss something? You know, did we forget to come to rehearsal? And we're just like, no, 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 you just weren't needed. Like, we didn't call you. We're not doing those scenes. And you just want to be respectful of your time. So that's what we try to do. So what does communication with the parents look like whenever it comes to creative? Because whenever you're dealing with that many kids, Mm -hmm. there have to be certain communication mechanisms that are more advantageous. So having a great stage manager is key. And Jeff Kiesler-Bird is one of the best stage managers in this area. He is so organized and so efficient and so has everything so planned out that it's it's great to have him on board for the show and work with him for you know several shows um he we have a facebook group we have an email group um everything gets posted or sent out via both of those things so that there's two methods of communication a lot of parents prefer the facebook um group and a lot of parents prefer the email um so everything gets sent out to that you know that way we send out weekly rehearsal reminders, sometimes daily rehearsal reminders. It just kind of depends. Any schedule changes we have, all that just gets sent out, and it's that's part of the stage manager's job, luckily. <laughs> so I'm thankful for Jeff for that because he's really good at what he does. And, yeah. And so that helps the communication a lot. But it's the communication is primarily email and, yeah. and Facebook group. Right. So with... Having managed 130 kids, mm-hmm. um, what has been the biggest challenge with having that many children in the cast for this show? When we call them all, they can get noisy. Um, they can be, you know, they, they, some of them have just gotten out of school and some of them have just gotten, you know, they may not enjoy school as much and so they think it's boring. So they come to rehearsal and it's fun and, you know, they want to goof around with their friends and at uh, it's, you know, to some extent we let them chat and whatever, but when it comes time for business, we've got to, you know, we try to keep them quiet. But sometimes that room can get really noisy with that many kids in there. And so that's one of the biggest challenges, I think, um, is just making sure that they're paying attention and they know what they're doing and, you know, they're respecting each other's time. Sometimes we'll work with a small group and then others will be sitting kind of off to the side and that one group sitting off to the side will get kind of noisy. So just teaching that respect of when someone's on stage doing their thing, then you need to be quiet and respectful of them doing their thing because you would want them to do the same for you. So that is the challenge. Um, finding places for them to go is the challenge, but we've already talked about that a little bit. Um, Both on stage and off stage. On stage and off, yeah. We're trying, like, we're moving these 130 kids into the Civic Center this week. Finding dressing room space for all of them is, you know, we're using every nook and cranny in the Civic Center, so. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So... From an artistic standpoint, how mm-hmm. do you how do you go about conceptualizing the show? Um, so just reading through the script, um, like I said, I know this show really well, so I knew the script really well already. Um, there were a couple changes that were made to the script recently, and so I just they edited some things out and added a couple things. So just looking at those new things and um, just interpreting the script first, going through and, and looking at locations scenically and just looking at the characters that are in each scene and just figuring out, you know, the best flow for the show um, is is kind of the first step. Um, just familiar, familiarizing yourself with the script. Um, the next thing I, I'd like to do is then think of like the s- scenic design, I guess, aspect of it. 
Um, we have a great group of, of guys that build our sets for us and our communication back and forth is usually pretty solid. And so just communicating those needs for each, um, for each scene and what I would like to see happen for each scene and how I plan to block each scene um, is another aspect of it. Um, and then just looking at it from all angles, choreography, um, seeing how we can incorporate different styles of dance into each section of the show. Um, we're doing something a little bit different with our Gaston song um, song in this show. Is We're going to incorporate some tap into it, which is not something that's often seen um, with Gaston. So we have a great group of tap, damper, tap dancers. That's really hard to say. Tap dancers, um, and we wanted to feature them. So we decided to make Gaston a tap number. Well, so, and there's, there's a certain rhythmic nature that is in that song sometimes with the cups and... right. And everything. So that makes a lot of sense. Right. So we have some cups, you know, the ensemble in the background are kind of doing the cup thing like you traditionally see with that song, but then our feature dancers are going to be doing a lot of tapping. So that's, it's just different ways of interpreting different parts of the script that, you know, that's when I said that, you know, we're, we're do, I'm doing something, some things different with this show compared to other versions you might have seen. That's one aspect is that we're adding the tap feature, you know, feature dancer tap section into Gaston. So, and overall, Overall vision of the show is somewhat of a traditional right. production of Beauty and the Beast. Right. Um, but then you're doing certain things to 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 kind of move that forward and move it in a new direction, the tap being one of them. What else can we see in this production that's just a little bit different than something we've seen before? Um. So, well, you probably haven't seen 130 kids in a production of Beauty and the Beast before, so that in itself is different. Um <laughs> We just have different uh, different sections of the show, dance-wise, that are a little different. Um, we're doing a little bit different approach to a lot of the castle scenes as far as the scenic design goes. I, there was a Broadway tour that went through not long ago that featured kind of one revolving castle piece um, for the West Wing and for different aspects of the castle that the Beast kind of, you know, that was his main place in the castle that he lived and did his, you know his stuff. Um, so we're kind of taking that approach. We have one very large castle piece that kind of rotates throughout the show to represent different scenes. Um, on each side of the piece, there's a fireplace, there's a dungeon, there's a, you know, the upstairs is where the West Wing is at and the rows. And so we're, that's something that, you know, you may not see with every production of Beauty and the Beast. A lot of times you see a unit set built, which is a set that is um, pretty much put on stage and left on stage for most of the show, where the West Wing is kind of incorporated into that. Um, lots of stairs and platforms. This way, we're, we're just kind of taking a little bit different approach, kind of going the Broadway tour route with it. So, Very cool. Yeah. Um, what about Beauty and the Beast specifically do you feel like makes it fit into right now? Why do you think it's, from a storyline and a thematic standpoint, what do you think makes it appropriate for today? Well, you have the whole aspect of um, Belle, you know, finding her way into this castle and seeing someone that is different than her and what she's used to seeing in her, you know, she calls her town poor and provincial and it's ordinary and, you know, it's, it's, it's just a pretty standard small town. So she goes to this castle and, you know, there's, there's, a point in the beginning where when she gets there where there's, you know, she's scared and she's afraid and, 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 and she's hesitant and meeting all these people, these castle objects, these, these people that are different than her. Um, 
but then quote unquote people, right? People, yeah, you know, <laughs> candlesticks and clocks and yeah. Um, but then she, in the end, falls in love with a beast, and not because of what he looks like, but because of who he is and and how he grows throughout the story and how, you know, he he becomes someone that she falls in love with and she's not, it's not because of his appearance. It's because of who he is on the inside. And yes, he becomes, you know, a handsome prince in the end and whatnot, but that, that is not the reason why she fell in love with him. It's not because he lives in a giant castle. It's not because, you know, like she's afraid of all that at the beginning, but it's because of who he is. And I think a lot of that is, can be, can be transferred to today and to our society to where, you know, you can fall in love with someone that is, looks different or that is, you know, may may live in, you know, some different area or I, I don't know. I don't know what the right words are, but what they are inside is is what you fall in love with and not what they are on the outside, I guess. And so that's what the story is is all about, especially with the castle objects and, and all of that. They're, you know, that's they become these things, um, but ultimately what they are on the inside is who they really are and not what they've become because of this curse that has been put upon them. So so yeah. essentially the, the overall arcing message can be that they're really not to judge people by their exterior or by their circumstance. Right. But who they truly are is inside and you really need to get to know someone before you put judgment upon them. Exactly. And that's exactly what the story is. Um from a lot of different angles. I mean, you have the complete opposite with Gaston. Gaston is, you know, this handsome, burly, big guy who all the girls fall in love with, but the reason why Belle doesn't fall in love with him is because of who he is on the inside. He's not a good person. It's the opposite. Belle, or Beast and Gaston, I mean, they're two opposite characters, and you can see, you know, you can see their different personalities and who they really are on the inside throughout the story, and that's, I mean, that's definitely what, you know, society is. That's what what we live in. And especially with the beast who puts off this incredibly scary, mm-hmm. intimidating exterior through behavior as well initially because he's come accustomed to scaring people away. Right. Uh, that it's not until Bill actually spends time with him that she sees past the facade of def- of his defensive mechanisms to see who he truly is. Right, exactly. And that's, it's a great story. It's a great, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a great thing to take into consideration into today's world. Don't judge a book by its cover, essentially. It's, you know, it's a great, it's a really, it's a really great story. Yeah. Well, we're here at the Civic Center. We're always excited to have new productions and local community theater. And it's so exciting to see so many new young kids get involved, especially after the break that we had to take during the pandemic and mm-hmm. and having literally years of not having new kids involved in things here. To see this resurgency and so many kids come out for Beauty and the Beast is so exciting and and really is inspiring for what is yet to come in the com- theater community over the next decade because so many kids are getting a start with such a cool, fun, great production, with such a great message. Right, yeah. Well, Brandon, thank you for spending some time with us today. We really look forward to the show. Um, Again, that is September 9th, 10th, and 11th here at the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. Tickets are available online at marioncc.com. Thank you for joining us today. We appreciate your time. 
We appreciate you being here, and we appreciate what you're doing for the community theater world in Southern Illinois. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for State of the Art Southern Illinois, a podcast by the Marion Cultural and Civic Center, featuring local artists, artisans, musicians, arts organizations, and arts events in Southern Illinois, as well as touring artists coming to the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. Special thanks to Brandon McGee for his time speaking with us today, and a special thank you to Wingtips for providing this episode's soundtrack. Join us here every Thursday morning for a new episode on Facebook, YouTube, or whatever audio podcast service you prefer. And now, for Repetitive by Wingtips in its entirety. Good.